we're continuing our sermon series looking at Mark's gospel passage we're looking at today, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Same exact story told in Luke 5 and Matthew 9. It's in your bulletin. If you want to flip in your Bible, it'll be on the screen overhead. Before that, quick announcement. Sweetheart, I did not tell Tripp to say something. Before I came to church this morning, Stephanie grabbed me and said, you better promise me you're not going to say something on my birthday. But she didn't tell Tripp that. I had no idea he was going to do that. So pray for me after the service. <laughs> That's not a joke, but thank you. All right, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch will tear away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, the skins and the wine will be destroyed, and so the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will send it forth to accomplish your purpose. Thank you that it does not return void. Um, Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and most importantly, hearts to believe the good news of your love for us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So, surprise, surprise, another story, another argument of Jesus and the religious leaders. At a minimum, confusion. They come to him, they're like, we don't understand why your disciples are not fasting the way John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. So the first thing we got to address is what's fasting, because at least to my knowledge, we're not like a a fasting dominant church. (laughs) Fasting is simply a religious discipline or practice where you abstain, um, usually from food or drink, but it can also be like um, dry January, where you abstain from alcohol, you abstain from social media, you abstain from something in your life for the purpose of attuning to God. In its simplest definition, that's what fasting is. Michael Card, in his commentary, says the purpose of fasting is to heighten awareness of God's presence so one can pray and be more sensitive to his voice. And so here in our story, the question is essentially, hey, Jesus, what's different about your disciples? Everybody else is fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Instead, y'all are feasting. Now, it's fascinating to note that the Bible in the Old Testament actually commands fasting only one time. In Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the Lord said, this shall be a solemn day of fasting where you pray and mourn and grieve your sin and think about your need for a redeemer. But fast forward to Jesus' day, and the Pharisees had said, if fasting is good in that situation, then we should do it twice a week over 100 times a year. Right? We're just going to go above and beyond the call of duty. Now, again, in and of itself, fasting isn't bad. The, the thing that determines whether fasting is um, bad or not is your heart motivation. And so Jesus says, even in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who only do it to be seen by others. The same as he says when you pray, when you give to the needy, don't do those things only to be seen by others. Or as a means of twisting God's arm, saying, look at what I'm doing for you. You now owe me because I'm being so good or religious. 
And, and so in a sense, what we notice is in this context, when they're asking Jesus, why don't your disciples fast, um, the whole reason behind how they were fasting had gotten twisted and corrupted. We see this so clearly in Luke 18, where Jesus says a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisees stood up and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And Jesus said, just so we're clear, boy, this guy's fast, that they are worthless. They are hardening his heart and making him a self-righteous hypocrite. He has no relationship with me. And so in this context, they're confused because they're like, hey, everybody else that's religious is fasting all the time, at least twice a week. But here are your disciples, and they're not doing that. Now, notice Jesus' response is very interesting. When they say, why don't your disciples fast? He doesn't go into all the background I just went into. He says, it's not appropriate for my disciples to mourn. Now, this means two things for us. First, it, it gets at how they viewed a relationship with God, their religious life in general. Big picture, the culture of that day believed that being religious meant mourning, being somber, being sad, grieving. In other words, not really being happy or having joy at all. Kent Hughes in his commentary says the Pharisees' attitude, and really more than that, because notice it says that the people came to Jesus. This isn't just the Pharisees saying, why don't they fast? The people. This was like so common that all the people come. And he says, so this attitude that was popular derived from, among other things, this false assumption that true religion was a solemn, joyless affair, an assumption that some people even hold today. You could not be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. They thought spirituality meant doing things you don't want to do and not doing things that you want to do. Now, you may be here today and think, oh, yeah. Another way to get at this is if I ask you the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christ follower, a disciple of Christ? What does it mean in light of the vows that Wade and Mason just took to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Would you define that as, well, it means that you can't do the things you want to do, and you got to do a bunch of stuff that you really don't want to do, and you got to be really serious and somber and sad and heavy. That needs to be the way people experience you. And this is a legit question. I mean, we're not going to raise our hand and throw out answers. Um, but it's a legit question to consider, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or do you think it means, oh, to be a Christian means you have to align with a certain political party? Wrong. That's not true either. If we think about what it means to be a Christian, I think this is probably the best definition I've heard in a long time. And this comes from a sermon that a friend of mine I was in seminary with named Matt Howell preached at Redeemer Prez in Memphis. He says, very simply, a Christian is someone who enjoys the love of God. I love that. A Christian is someone who enjoys, and you can, you can really insert in there, receiving the love of God. Remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed and he did the absolute unthinkable um, act of getting down on his knees to clean his disciples' feet? from like all the animal dung and everything else. It was such a degrading move that Jews weren't even allowed to do it. You had to get some Gentile to do it. And when Jesus is doing this, his disciples are clearly speechless and shocked, and he gets to Peter, the one who was constantly trying to earn and merit his relationship with Jesus, and he says, no, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't receive from me, you can have no part with me. Peter, if you don't learn to enjoy how to receive my love, then you can have no relationship with me. 
And I think Matt is, is so right when he says that fundamentally a Christian is someone who enjoys receiving the love of God. Because notice, Jesus doesn't say, hey, the reason my disciples aren't fasting is because you guys are a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites and you're really going to be condemned because of your self-righteousness. He says it's not appropriate to mourn while the groom is here. It's not appropriate for the wedding guest to act the way y'all are acting. Now, what he's saying is, if you're going to understand what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of God, you have to understand that it's like a wedding feast, that it's like a great celebration, that you have joy that never goes away as the bedrock of your life. And so think we get the point he's making here. If any of us got married after all the planning and preparing and everything that went on, and then we have our ceremony, and then we walk into the reception, and everybody's in there, and there's music playing, and there's good wine, and people are dressed up, and food, and dancing, and you see some of your closest friends sitting at a table, and they're all sitting there, and they're not drinking wine, and they're not eating any food, they're not smiling, they're not dancing, and they're just looking down, and you say, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? And they're like, oh, nothing. We just decided to fast today. You're like, what? This is not appropriate to do at my wedding feast. This is a time of celebration. And because of your relationship with me, you should be celebrating. Jesus says this is something that we must understand if we are going to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, essentially what Jesus is saying is, listen, the Christian life is meant to be filled with joyful celebration. It's meant to be filled with deep happiness and joy as Tripp just prayed, regardless of the circumstances that we are experiencing Jesus doesn't say, well, my disciples aren't fasting because there's so much they need to do. And I need their energy up so they can remember my words to write the Gospels. We're going to go out and we're going to heal the sick and we're going to cast out demons and we're going to advance the kingdom and they're ultimately going to be murdered. So they got to get their strength up. This is like boot camp. No. He said, when I'm here with these guys, they need to learn how to celebrate and to feast and to rejoice. Kent Hughes says, after a Jewish wedding... The couple did not go on a honeymoon, but they would stay at home for a week of open house in which there was continual feasting and celebration. For the hardworking, this was traditionally considered to be the happiest week in their lives. The bride and the groom were treated like a king and a queen that week. Sometimes they would even wear crowns. They were attended by chosen friends that were known as guests of the bridegroom, which means literally children of the bride's chamber. Their guests were exempted from all fasting through rabbinical ruling that said all in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances that would lessen their joy. Anything that would lessen your joy, you can't do. The whole focus is joy. The whole focus is celebration. The whole focus is feasting. Jesus says, if you're going to understand what being in a relationship with me, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is like, you must get this. Now, time out. I have to apologize. I struggle mightily to live in light of this. And the reason I have to apologize to you guys and not just Jesus, my Savior, is because as being one of the pastors here, um, I think I negatively influence us as a church and we don't rightfully live um, with the joy of the Lord and the feasting and celebration that is rightfully ours. Now, if it's helpful, I don't want this to sound like an excuse, but if it's helpful to understand some of my context, um, I grew up and was so turned off 
from the church because of what I perceived as a surface level fake happiness, like let's get excited and clap cheerfulness and ignore anything that's hard. I told someone this week after my dad died when I was 13 and I was crushed, I was lost, I was angry, I was confused. I can't remember a single person in our church ever saying, how are you doing? Like, how are you actually doing? Instead, it was like, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to act like we're excited over here. And I feel like I hated it. I was so turned off from it. And a part of God's kindness in pursuing my heart was helping me begin to see Jesus is a man of sorrows acquainted with suffering. That he entered in deeply, even at his friend Lazarus' death, knowing he was going to raise him from the dead, he still wept so uncontrollably that people said, look how much he loved him. We cannot believe how much he loved him. He was nicknamed Man of Sorrows, acquainted with suffering, and that's not all he did. He didn't just grovel and walk around mourning and weeping all the time. Luke 7 says, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, so much so that people say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus, of course, wasn't a glutton or a drunkard, but the point there is he clearly partied so hard people thought that. You don't throw out those accusations if there's not some um, legitimacy or evidence that leads you to think that. And so my point is, this is something God's continually been pushing on me about is I want hope to be a safe place where we don't have to fake it and we can be honest about legit struggle, pain, sadness, and sorrow. And we never, ever ignore when people are in the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't have to live only, always in the valley of the shadow of death. And and I need to be better about that. Coming out of sabbatical this summer, multiple friends of mine said to me, Hey, how can, you know, we be praying for you and whatever, whatever, as you come back into work and the weightiness of ministry. And I'm like, that's nice, great, thanks for asking, and they meant it. But then they're like, hey, but also, we want fun sabbatical, Matt, to stay. And I'm like, I do too. And a part of what I was confessing by saying that is I don't always know how to do that. There's a part of me that can get it twisted if I sit with someone whose life is falling apart and there's so much weightiness and heaviness that, that I just, I, I carry it. I almost feel like I'm not being true to them and entering in if I don't carry it all the time. And that's just not, one, biblical or true and healthy of me. And so I need help um, personally as a, as a son of God and pastorally um, to live more um, in the place Trusting that even like in Nehemiah 8, it says you don't need to grieve and mourn because the joy of the Lord really is your strength. Paul says in Romans 12, I want your love to be genuine. And one of the direct applications he gives is if your love's genuine, you'll be able to rejoice with those that rejoice. You'll be able to feast and celebrate and party when it's appropriate. And you'll be able to weep with those who weep and mourn and enter in and not minimize and not put, you know, a... Christian platitude bumper sticker on someone's suffering. This is super hard to do, but this is what we're called to in Christ. That, that, that what the Spirit is seeking to work redemptively in our lives. And so along with saying I'm sorry and asking you to please pray for me, like I would throw out, hey, where do you naturally land? Do you gravitate more towards the, the sadness, heaviness, and sorrow, or gravitate more towards the joyful celebration I throw that out simply for you to maybe consider and grow in self-awareness and then say, okay, Jesus, can you grow me in this other area that I may not be as comfortable living in? Don't, don't just let me kind of land over here and then judge people that I consider, you know, 
in the other camp. If I'm a person who lives in the celebratory land, when I see people that are always lamenting and groveling, I can, you know, sinfully in my heart say, why, why don't they have any joy in the Lord? And if I live in the, the weighty, mourning, heavy land, I can look at people that are joyful and think, I mean, why are they so fake and shallow and not willing to enter in? And Jesus says, no, I, I'm inviting you to be emotionally healthy and to learn to live more in this place where you can really do both. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a part of what we all want. And side note, it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited that we're hiring Ryan Stanley. And my friendship with Ryan, I mean, he just laughs a lot more effortlessly than I do. And he helps me to laugh. I mean, I'm not saying he's like some shallow clown that never talks about deep things. He does. He's got a, a super deep um, trust in Jesus. And he helps me laugh. And so even when we were meeting with him to interview about the position, people on the staff said to me afterwards, oh, we're excited about Ryan because we think he's going to help you be able to laugh more. So I've been sending him like clips of wedding crashers when Vince Vaughn's making bicycles and the kid is like, make me a bicycle clown. I'm like, there you go. I need you to like cheer me up. Just kidding. But I have sent him that, but I don't think he's like a clown. I don't know if he can make balloon animals anyway. So Jesus says, hey, you got to understand that this is what living in the kingdom of heaven is like even now. Even now when there's all this persecution and all these religious leaders are mad at him and they're ultimately going to kill him, that you got to have these categories of a wedding feast celebration. Now this would have been completely like shocking and, and scandalous to the people that are hearing this. But what would have been more shocking and more scandalous and more amazing or whatever adjective we throw on it is that Jesus doesn't just say being a Christian is like a wedding feast over here but I am the bridegroom, and he puts himself in the story. He says, it's not appropriate when the bridegroom is here for the wedding guest to mourn. You know, I had the privilege of, you know, participating in a lot of weddings, and we all know, like, in a sense, the most special time of the wedding ceremony is when the bride comes down the aisle, and it's my job officiating to say, hey, stand and turn. So everybody stands and they turn and they, they look at the bride. And she's radiant and beautiful and glorious. And it's just unbelievable. And it's like this is this majestic moment, one of the most special times of her life. But what I'll also love to do is turn and look at the groom. And, and a lot of people I'll notice will do this because they want to see the look on his face as his bride is coming to him. And it's hard to even describe with words what that look is like of, of overwhelming joy and gratitude and humility. I cannot believe that she loves me, that I'm going to get to spend the rest of my life with her. Listen, the Bible says that is a small glimpse of how God looks at us, how he thinks about you. Like, do you believe me? Unless you think that's preacher hyperbole, listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 62.5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, A man leaves his father and mother and he holds fast to his wife. The two become one flesh. This great mystery actually refers to Christ and his church. That picture, that look of overwhelming delight and affection is how God looks at us. It, it, it almost feels like too intimate and inappropriate to use that language about God. Larry Crabb says, you need to understand your heavenly bridegroom is consumed with desire for you. Not the King of kings and Lord of lords tolerates your ridiculousness 
and will give you a place in the kingdom. He is consumed with desire for you and for me. Now, if you're saying that just cannot be true, I I just can't believe that level of love, affection, and delight could actually be true for me. How can I know? And, of course, the answer is the cross. And Jesus even hints at that in verse 20. He says, the days are coming when the bridegroom is going to be taken away, and then they will fast. See, the term translated taken away in English, the Greek term literally means violently removed by force. Jesus is saying, listen, you need to understand that when I'm talking about a bridegroom and his guest and a wedding feast, this isn't a Hallmark card, um, sentimental, surfacey, you know, picture of love that the culture can understand. This is a bloody, costly, sacrificial, I will do whatever it takes to make you my bride throughout all of eternity. That's what we're talking about. Now, I know that there's a lot of us in this room today that are like, you know what, Matt, this isn't actually helpful for me because the picture of, you know, husband covenant love and faithfulness in marriage that I've experienced or I experienced in my home was anything but attractive. And I'd say the only reason that it's hurtful and disappointing is because you know that you're created to experience a love that will never let you go. The reason we know it's not right when marriages fail and when husbands, you know, betray their wives and, and those things fall apart and marriages are ruined is because we know deep in our heart we're created for a love relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords where he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And Jesus says you've got to understand. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This isn't sentimental, surface, wish-washy love. This is sacrificial, bloody love for you and for me. Now, you may be saying, okay, I feel like I kind of get that intellectually, but on a day-in, day-out basis, I don't feel it. I don't feel like I experience it, which is really another way of saying, hey, um, if, I, if I'm aware of the love of God, um, how can it transform my life? And Jesus says that what has to happen is you have to stop trying to fit Jesus into your small, old, outdated categories of relating to God. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch is going to tear away, the new from the old, and there's going to be a worse tear. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, the wine will be destroyed, the skin's ruined. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, these are two simple images to understand. If you have an old pair of jeans that you like that they rip and you take a, another piece of cloth and just stitch it on there and it's not already washed or dried or pre-shrunk or stretchy or whatever, the first time you wash and dry those jeans, it's going to tear away. It's going to shrink. It's going to tear. And it's going to be worse than before. In this culture, the skin of goats was stripped as nearly whole as possible so they could be filled with new wine. And this skin was able to expand as the new wine fermented. And Jesus is saying if you take old wineskins that have already been used and they're brittle and they have no elasticity and you pour new wine in it, the wine is going to expand and it's going to burst and both are going to be ruined. In other words, you can't try to fit Jesus into your small operating system of your old way of living. In order to experience the feast and the celebration and the joy that Jesus has, you have to understand that every part of your life is transformed because of your relationship 
with Jesus. And this is what Paul says in Colossians 3. You have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In a sense, marriage kind of helps us understand this. When you get married, the two become one. There's no this part of my life and that part of her life and whatever. Even this week, I was meeting with a couple, and we were, they've been married a few months. 30 minutes into hearing them talk about some of their different fights, I stopped them. Because I think that the husband had said, you know, I, I, my, me, I, me. You know, and the wife was doing this. I said, hey, stop, listen. Before we get into all the details of what's happening, y'all got to understand the I and the my has got to go away. It's the we. Every part of y'all's life is a we and a ours. There's no more I. There's no more. That, that's got to fall away. At a, at a minimum, if y'all can't get on board with that, then, then you've got no shot of experiencing that which you were created to enjoy. And Jesus is saying, this is what it's like when you're in relationship with me. I heard one guy this week say, you know, we have our phones that are ridiculous in so many ways, and our phones are full of apps. When you belong to Jesus, you don't add a Jesus app to your phone. It is a completely new operating system that changes and affects every single app in your life, every activity in your life, the way you relate to others, the way you think about your future, the way you relate to money, the way you relate to possessions. Everything is seen through the lens of I belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords, which means I can have joy regardless of my circumstances. Why? Because Jesus conquered death in the grave. And that means even if I get a diagnosis that says I'm going to die from a brain tumor in a week, all that can do is usher me into glory. And again, we harp so much on don't go there too quickly. Don't give someone a Jesus-resurrected new heaven platitude when they're suffering. But that is a promise and a guarantee that we have. Jesus is going to make all things new. And when you belong to Jesus, he said in John 14, even if you die, you will live forever. This is why Tim Keller could try to cheer his family up on his deathbed, moments away from taking his last breath. He said, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. And so his son said, you can't believe the comfort and encouragement that gave our hearts because our father died in the Lord. Every breath we take is a gift that God gives us. Every breath we take, we're one moment closer to glory. And what's it going to be like? Revelation 19, the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those that are invited to the wedding feast celebration that will never, ever end. Blessed are those who every single good, amazing, beautiful experience in this life that you've ever had that you didn't want to end is a mere appetizer. It's like one drop in the ocean of God's love and what's coming. The greatest party you've ever been to is just a dim hint and reflection of what you're going to experience forever. And if that's true... It doesn't mean we don't mourn and grieve the brokenness and sadness in this world, but it doesn't destroy us. It doesn't define us. We can still have the joy of the Lord as our strength. And that's why I love that in John 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Jesus is saying, when I rise again from the dead, I'm going to see you, and you're going to have rejoicing, and then I'm going to leave and go to the Father, and you're all going to be martyred and murdered for associating with me, but you're going to have a joy that no one can take away. Guess what? 
That's true for us. If you belong to Christ today, that is true of you. Again, I'm not minimizing. I'm not saying stand up and start clapping and dancing if you're really in a bad place. But there is a joy that we have in Jesus that is the foundational bedrock of our life that we are meant to hold on to. John Piper says it this way. This is the quote on the front of your bulletin. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That was the declaration of the angels in Luke 2 that we hear every Christmas. Not small joy, not modest joy, but great joy. If we don't feel this when we ponder the incarnation of the Son of God, we need awakening. We need to be stirred up. I called Christmas the dawning of indestructible joy because the joy Jesus was bringing into the world was like no other kind in history. Once we have it, it cannot be destroyed. Jesus said, no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we just need to own and confess that we don't really have categories for this type of joy. Father, I, I just confess and ask for your forgiveness in ways that I live as if this isn't true. As if I live, as if the, the only thing that's true is the valley of the shadow of death. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you conquered death in the grave. And you give us a joy that comes from knowing we are your beloved, that we are the delight of your heart, that your affection rests on us. And nothing, you said in John 10, no one can ever snatch you out of my hand. So, Lord, please help us to believe it, help us to rejoice, help us to live more as if this is true. And we know that you desire that for us, not just for your glory, but also for our good. So help us to even respond with joy now in worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.